Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is one of a series of five conversations on colonial and revolutionary America recorded at the University of South Carolina before a live audience. The program is sponsored by the university's College of Arts and Sciences. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Conversations on South Carolina. This year we're going to talk about the revolution and colonial South Carolina. And I'd like to thank Interim Dean Roger Sawyer for supporting this, and also former Dean Marianne Fitzpatrick, who kind of got this in motion before she uh, stepped down last spring. Marianne, you're here. Would you just stand up and there, there she is. And the distinguished colleague from USC Beaufort, uh, Professor Lawrence Rowland, is a longtime friend of mine, and we've been friends for decades. So he doesn't mind me calling him an old friend. No. Um, we were in graduate school together. Uh, we've worked on many programs together over the last 30 or 40 years. His love for South Carolina history is just, I'd say it's almost as deep as mine, if not. Yep. But the problem is you get focused on Beaufort, and I look at a little bit broader scale than, than Beaufort. I mean, it's taken him three volumes to do the history of Beaufort County. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to talk about South Carolina as a colonial melting pot. You know, Larry, when you and I, not when graduate school, but when we were going through grade school, we always studied about history and the diversity of the colonies, and it was always New York and Pennsylvania that were, quote, the colonial melting pots. You know, they had French and German and what have you. And actually, as you and I both know, South Carolina was really more diverse than those colonies were. It's a very interesting thing. You see, this pin I'm wearing is uh, the pin of the... Um, new Santa Elena Foundation. So one of the things that you pointed out in South Carolina history that but people don't recognize often is that South Carolina was actually the first European capital in North America um, on Paris Island. It was a Spanish city there for 21 years. So the whole territory that uh, I have written about for four decades is a place that was a contested land it wasn't really until 1763 that the English finally determined their dominion over the Sea Islands south of Charleston. And of course, what propelled the Spaniards and the French uh, Huguenots who came before them was uh, Port Royal Sound, which is a unique geographical feature. It's the deepest natural harbor south of New York. And one of the interesting things that the research, the recent research is uncovered, is that the entrance to Port Royal Sound from the ocean to the sound has not changed for 500 years. The Spanish sailing instructions today are the same. You could use those today to get into Port Royal Sound. So you start with the fact that this, the whole Sea Island south of Charleston were settled by Spaniards, not Englishmen. And though they withdrew and were gone 100 years before the English arrived, there's a whole century of history centered around the coast of South Carolina that most people don't know about, the lost century of American history. So that's a piece of diversity that most Americans don't know about. Walter fortunately put an entire fine chapter in, the, in South Carolina history that covers that unknown or forgotten period of South Carolina history. Well, and, and of course part of that is the folks at St. Augustine just really don't know their history. Uh, I don't know how many times as a child I went there and I took our children there and you see the oldest this and the oldest that, the oldest wooden schoolhouse in America. The only problem with that is South Carolinians burned St. Augustine twice in the 18th century. And the only thing that survived was the Castillo. I did watch my 12-year-old daughter Eliza have fun. St. Augustine does living history. And this person began to talk about the old building, and she said, did it predate the, the raid here by Colonel Chicken, and it did predate the Oglethorpe raid? And he began getting antsy and said, now, young lady, this is the history. And she said, no, sir, this is, you were burned twice. <laughs> <laughs> More um, than that. In fact, the, the Castillo of uh, San Marcos in, in St. Augustine was built largely by runaway slaves from South Carolina. There was a whole movement of slaves from South Carolina to Florida in, uh, from 1693 uh, right up to eight, 1763. 
And the reason was because the Spanish uh, offered freedom to any slaves who would work on the fortress for four years, and then they would be free. And they built in their own town. Yeah. They also, they had to become Roman Catholic as well. And right? they had to become Roman Catholic. And they, were, they, became, they became free and they were given land. Mm -hmm. And South Carolina, and we'll talk more about the frontier next week, uh, was the southern frontier of the British Empire. And right. St. Augustine was always a thorn in the English, not to mention the French over on the Gulf Coast. But let's, let's, there, let's move on up into settling South Carolina, 1670. Again, the diversity of folks who came here from the very beginning, it was really because the Lord's proprietors were very smart recruiting agents. Oh, yes, uh, great land developers. You have to start with the, with the Stewarttown settlement on Port Royal Island, which was a Scottish enterprise for Presbyterians, basically, Scots Covenanters. And it did not succeed because the Spaniards came up a year and a half later and destroyed it. But um, the people who settled there mostly remained in South Carolina, or a significant number of them remained in South Carolina, returned to that area to open up uh, the Indian trade in deerskins, uh, the commerce with the Native Americans. And so the first land claims in my region of South Carolina were Scots. Uh, Thomas Nairn, John Stewart, specifically. Yeah. Thomas Nairn met an unfortunate end. Yes. Uh, he was barbecued by the Indians. <laughs> no, he was captured uh, during the Amasi War. Uh, splinters, lightwood splinters, would stu stuck under his skin, beginning at his feet, and he literally was slowly burned. Yeah, he was tortured for nine days. Nine days. Before he expired. Um, you can go to uh, St. Andrew's, Old St. Andrew's Church uh, in West Ashley and you can see his grave, you can see a description. It's not his grave, that's actually his uh, wife's grave. You can see a description of his demise carved in stone there. But it was, a, it, the one thing to remember about the area south of Charleston is it was a very dynamic frontier. Lots of different people mm. moved in and out or were driven in and yeah. out. Well, but really that was true of the, of, of the whole colony. When I was writing the history of South Carolina, there have been any number of articles done recently by ethnographers right. who study populations based upon name and what other documentation they can find. But, for example, in South Carolina, the percentage of the white population that was English was the largest single. It was 37%, but it wasn't a majority. Now, people keep talking about South Carolina being an English colony. Well, what's interesting is Except for Pennsylvania, South Carolina had the smallest percentage of English settlers among the white population. On the average, the American colonies was about 60% in the different colonies. Almost a third of the white population was Scots, and that includes Scots-Irish, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Scots-Irish is not a term now that's, that people use, mainly because the Scots have protested that there's no Irish blood in a Scots-Irishman. <laughs> And the, la the last iteration that I got, it went through being, first of all, people used to call it Scotch-Irish, and as any good Scotsman knows, uh, whiskey and Scotch is something you drink. You're a Scot. You're not Scotch. But now it's an Ulster Scot, Scots who moved from the home country to live in Northern Ireland. Um, the Irish, though, did make up about 12% of the white population. And interestingly there, uh, most of that immigration, although technically legal under the Immigration Acts of the 18th century, they had to attest that they were Protestant. Then you've got Welsh, you've got German, you've got Dutch, French. The Huguenots are probably the next best known group, although relatively small. And interestingly enough, the ethnographers found some Swedes in colonial South Carolina. Now, you might say, where on earth do Swedes, how did they get here? Well, if you look over in the PD and over in the Welch Neck, many of those Welchmen from the Welch Neck came from the three lower counties of Pennsylvania, which originally was Delaware, which was New Sweden. And so these were Swedes who came down with other settlers from that area and came down to uh, to South Carolina. And of course, most interesting in terms of ethnic groups would be South Carolina's Jewish population. 
you only had to believe in God to settle in South Carolina. Now that's pretty interesting. You only had to believe in God. You did not have to be Christian to settle in South Carolina. And South Carolina, by the time of the revolution, had the largest Jewish population in numbers in terms of percentages of, of the population itself. It was not particularly large, but it was the largest Jewish population in the United States. And Charleston remained the largest Jewish populated city in the country until 1820. So the only new thing that's come up in the last two years, and I don't believe it because I haven't seen the documentation, is uh, I had a friend at a, a school up north who swore after having studied immigrants from Switzerland who came that he's found people from the Italian Swiss cantons who came to South Carolina. Kind of makes sense. We have people from the German cantons. We have people from the French. But I have yet to see spaghetti on a colonial recipe book, so I'm, I'm not convinced. Well, in fact, uh, a lot of those Italians settled in the Beaufort District in the colonial period. They were there early. But, that, but that's, that's post-colonial. Uh, nope. These people were there before the MSC War. Oh, and okay, you're just going to say that that theory is correct. We have an Italian heritage, so you can eat <laughs> as much pasta as you like. The, um, i got to revise my figures. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, if you look at the Perrysburg settlement, which is next to the settlement of Beaufort, the largest ethnic impact and population demographic impact in the Beaufort district, about 30 families came from the Italian Piedmont, and uh, they were Italian Protestants. Uh, the most prominent name down there is Martin Angelo, which was changed to Martin Angel and pretty much driven out because they were loyalists. They lived on Defusky, and, and, uh, but there were several Italian families that stayed in, in, uh, okay. in the Beaufort district. All right. I, I'm Small number, but we have an Italian heritage. Okay, hey, that makes 10 ethnic groups. I can now change, you know, seriously, I, I'm, I'm glad to know that because I always had friends who were of Italian descent who kept wanting to say that they really thought that they should file to be able to get in the DAR or the Dames or what have you, but they couldn't find the documentation. So hmm. now you've got it. Uh, well, if it's most of the Italian families, so a few of the Italian families came before the Embassy War. Most came with the Perrysburg settlement, mm -hmm. which was a very large impact on the ethnic diversity of the southern corner of the state, because the, the Perrysburg settlement was 1734. It was a Swiss enterprise, Jean-Pierre Perry, but um, about two-thirds of the Swiss who came were uh, French, mm -hmm. Swiss, and that's the origin of most of what we consider Huguenot names in that part of the state, um, Dessessur and other prominent names, uh, Lafitte and many others. But about a quarter of those people were German, so that was the origin of much of the German population. It was the first large German um, immigration mm -hmm. to South Carolina. It, it picked up after that, so there's a sort of a, a German swath from Savannah to Columbia, that whole section of the state where Earhart and Bamberg and all these towns are, was settled, and St. Matthews. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. just go down to those country towns and read the phone book, and you, see it, and you see a church in all these little towns with a red door. They're Lutherans. The Lutherans. And we have a Lutheran seminary in, in Columbia, which is one of the oldest in the South. But a lot of that German immigration, which became quite dominant in many sections of the southeastern corner of the state, began with the Perrysburg Settlement of 1734. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and of course, it was the township system that was established that in the 1730s that really began to attract ethnic groups, the townships that were created to create a ring of basically fortified settlements to protect Charleston. Right. And it went from the Savannah all the way around through to the PD area. And many of those did have an ethnic characteristic. Orangeburg, right. which was predominantly German. Saxagotha, which is now Lexington, predominantly German. Uh, and you mentioned continuation to today in the little towns. There, were, there was a, a map of the state done in the 1950s where each county was colored according to the dominant denomination. And three counties in the center of the state were purple for Lutheran. Orangeburg, Lexington, and Newberry. I think they really should have put Lawrence in there too, but it, the Baptist edged them out at the, <laughs> at, at the end. But that, that, that continued, so you've got as late as 1950, the, 
the German population kept their ethnic identity. In fact, till World War I, you could not be a pastor in most Lutheran churches unless you could at least give a sermon in German. At least once a year, they had, they had the sermons in, in, in German. And there was a German language newspaper in Charleston until Woodrow Wilson shut it down because a German language newspaper would be treason during World War I. And they, uh, the antebellum schools, country schools in the Beaufort district, in the upper part of the Beaufort district, Robertville, this is the one I'm thinking about, and one in Coosahatchee, they spoke, they, they taught German. They were required to uh, learn English, French, and German. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, German-speaking schoolmasters in several. Mm -hmm. This is in the 1840s. So that particular ethnic um, group was proud of their heritage. Mm -hmm. Well, all of them were, and at least through several generations, most of those ethnic groups practiced endogamy. They married within, within the group, and then by the time you get to the revolution, there had begin, begun to be marrying outside, and most notable of those who were assimilated were the Huguenots. Many of them anglicized their names, became good Anglican, Church of England folks. Not all, but some did. But that French influence up there on the Santee, which was actually called the French Santee in some earlier uh, histories, the parish there was St. Thomas and St. Denis, spelled with one N. St. Denis is the patron saint of France. And in fact, when the parish was created in the colonial period, it required that the Anglican clergyman had to be able to speak French in order to be the, pa the rector of that particular parish. So South Carolina recognized those differences, and in Orangeburg, there was actually a book of common prayer produced before the revolution in German. Mr. Geisendatter mm -hmm. had it done. So South Carolina was aware and accepted ethnic differences. And it goes beyond just being German and French and what have you. If you were English, you just didn't come from the mother country. Larry, where did the most notable of our English settlers come from? They didn't come from the mother country firsthand. Where did they come from? Well, Bermuda. Well, that's what? just one. Yeah. Um, Governor Sale, but. Yeah, but most through Pennsylvania and, and Virginia, a lot, of, a lot of the early settlers came from the south side of Virginia. But yeah. No, I'm, I'm thinking mainly about the Caribbean. Oh, well. The Goose Creek men. Yeah, I was going to get to, I wanted to mention that you mentioned the Jewish population. Um, an awful lot of the Jewish merchants that came to South Carolina very early and formed this group that Walter talked about were Sephardic Jews from the West Indies. Um, you'll notice if you look at the history of them, there were a lot of Spanish names among them. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, Jewish folks the, the, um, came from the Iberian Peninsula to America to seek some kind of religious freedom and uh, became very active in the Caribbean trade of which Charleston was a major port. Mm -hmm. So it was a natural sort of movement of these Jewish merchants from the Caribbean and the Spanish Caribbean to uh, the South Carolina Low Country. And, and two of those most prominent names were Tobias and DaCosta, right. Sephardic Jews who came from the Caribbean to South Carolina. Right. But those, you know, those, those Englishmen who came from the Caribbean, and we, we did have a Bermudian. And if you see in the old documents, they refer to um, West Indians or everybody's a Barbadian. They didn't all come from Barbados, but they came from the English islands in the Caribbean. And they included Bermuda, which certainly is not in the Caribbean, but they included those folks as being Barbadians. So when you've seen that term, they're referring to folks who had settled in whether it was St. Kitts or Grenada or Jamaica or Barbados itself before they came to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And they were probably the single most important group, I would argue, that came to South Carolina. They are the ones who came here and made the settlement stick. They were tough folks. Um, as I like to point out to my friends in Virginia, FFVs are, are descended mostly from about a third wave that came over in the 1670s. That first group just couldn't make it. South Carolinians from the very beginning stuck it out. They came here to make money. They came here to better themselves. And they didn't want anybody to get in their way. Mm -hmm. Land and money, they were tough people. Um, pirates, libertines, what's the rest of that quote? Uh, you probably have it in South Carolina, a history. Uh, at any rate, it was a, a quote from an Anglican divine. 
oh, early in South Carolina history about the nature of South Carolinians, and it was not complimentary. <laughs> well, I mean, they came from the Caribbean, and dealing with pirates was a perfectly normal matter. Smuggling was, was an accepted way to do because, well, well, you were, yes, you were dealing with the Spaniards, but, you know, so what? They paid good price for right. South Carolina produce. So yes, the early settlers, how they made their money was not too much of a concern. Making it was a concern. Land and money. Yes, and they don't want anybody telling them what to do. There's some of us who would argue that the whole beginning of South Carolina exceptionalism and this resistance to outside authority began with these Barbadians. After all, the only true revolution in colonial America before the revolution was in South Carolina when the Lord's proprietors were out, ousted in 1719. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just part of this ethnic mix. And by the way, those Barbadians very skillfully used ethnic differences in order to gain control of the colony because interestingly, the folks south of Charleston were for the most part dissenters. They were not members of the Church of England. And they were very opposed to the Barbadians, most of whom were Church of England. And the party or the faction that briefly gained control of the assembly in the 1690s were the Goose Creek men, the Barbadians. They passed a naturalization act that gave the Huguenots, made them citizens of South Carolina, even though they were Calvinists. And from then on, that alliance of French Huguenots and Barbadians was, were able to take charge of the colony. So they very blatantly appealed for the vote. And a lot of their opposition came from Colleton County in what is now the Beaufort District now Beaufort County, Jasper County, and Hampton County, which was then Granville County, because much of that settlement down there were dissenters, were Presbyterians. Uh, the Stony Creek Presbyterian Church, one of the oldest, 1743, one of the oldest in our district. Yeah. So these people um, were not, and, and even the Anglican Church, St. Helena Church, and the founder of Beaufort was Tuscarora Jack Barnwell. He was uh, consciously low church Anglican. Mm -hmm and uh, got into political disputes because of it, because he wasn't sufficiently high church. But his whole constituency south of Charleston was pretty much non-Anglican. This was, it was called a hodgepodge, and today we say hodgepodge, but it was, said it was a bigger hodgepodge of religious organizations than could even be found in Amsterdam, could be found in South Carolina. And a lot of those differences had to do with ethnic background. And, and South Carolina's fundamental constitution has the distinction of having the greatest amount of religious freedom of any colonial constitution. And, um, and the history of the colony seems to live up to that sense of religious um, freedom of conscience, except for Roman Catholics, who were considered a bit subversive. And there's good reason for that, because the Spaniards kept invading the colony, you know, and, uh, and killing people. So, uh, and, and it had to do with English politics as well. Yeah. So freedom of religion basically, except for Roman Catholics. And anybody who could get seven people together to declare themselves a church could become a church and be recognized. And then today we would call hate laws in the books of the fundamental constitutions. If you verbally attacked an organized or recognized church, that was considered a crime in South Carolina. But that, that's just a part of our history that, that people don't realize, but it was that openness of South Carolina that attracted all of these different folks. No question. Uh, the, uh, the Jewish story that I like the best is the one about Peter Levine, who meets all the criteria that you just described. Uh, he was born on the island of St. Croix. He ended up in Beaufort. And uh, he was probably the largest indigo shipper in, this, in the province at the time. And because the vestries of the Anglican parishes were public institutions, all sorts of non-Anglicans were elected to the St. Helena Vestry. There were a couple of Presbyterians and Peter Levine, a Jewish member of the St. Helena Vestry. Well, he was the biggest merchant on Bay Street at the time, but he was a loyalist, so he didn't stay. But the interesting part of that is that his half-brother was Alexander Hamilton of New York. 
you'll find eventually that all of American history actually began in Beaufort, South Carolina. Thank you very much. <laughs> See what I, I told you, that's... <laughs> uh, you can connect almost everything to South Carolina. I'm not sure you can connect everything to Beaufort. Right. Uh, but that's okay. But, but you, you mentioned names, and I just want to toss some out. We talked about the Barbadians, names that you'd recognize of these folks who came over in the 17th century. Colletons, Yeamans, Daniel, Middleton, Gibbs, Skinking, Pinckney, Moore, Drayton, Elliott, Ladson. All of these were Barbadians who came over in the 17th and 18th, early 18th century. Lucas, Rollin Lowndes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of these folks. So you can talk about our English colonists. We've got the folks from Barbados. You've also got people from New England coming to South Carolina as a group, Dorchester, South Carolina, St. George Dorchester Parish, started out as originally the first folks went from Dorchester, England, founded Dorchester, Massachusetts, and then as a congregation they moved to Dorchester, South Carolina. Eventually they got unhappy and moved on down to Georgia. But Midway Georgia. But these yeah. are Puritans. Congregationalists, yeah, Puritans. So, so you, you throw that into the mix, and it's not just an, an English. But see, there are New Englanders who are coming, and New Englanders keep coming, uh, really up into the 19th century. And then the folks from the mother country. So you've got three different strains of English settlers coming to South Carolina. And the French, you've already mentioned, the French-Swiss. We had some French Canadians who came down after the English took over. That didn't work out too well. Most of them ended up going down to Louisiana. Uh, and then you had the Huguenots who were from France itself, escaping persecution. Yes, and, and Savannah had a big influence on our district. And of course, uh, Savannah was heavily Irish for a long time. I mean, before and after the Revolutionary War. But there's a very big German settlement there at New Ebenezer, right across the river from uh, Perry, right across the Savannah River from Perrysburg. So you had um, a lot of religious mix as well as an ethnic mix in that on the southern frontier. Those German folks, the number of principalities and states from which they could come, we don't have enough fingers and toes to count, and they were all different. I mean, you've got the German-Swiss, but then you've got somebody from Saxagotha, you've got somebody from Saxony, you've got somebody from Bavaria, you've got, well, maybe not Bavaria because they were still Catholic, but from the Protestant. Mm -hmm. And we just forgot the Dutch. Lots of Dutch. You know. But well, you, Dutch were all in New York, weren't they? Yeah, I know, but David Duncan Wallace in history said, in talking about ethnicity in South Carolina, he said, the Dutch were of no consequence in South Carolina. The Rets, Van Drost, mm -hmm. just to mention a few. Interestingly, historic Charleston's headquarters in, is the old Van Drost place in Charleston. And of course, the name Rhett does have a ring in South Carolina history uh, and fiction. And of course, they were heavily associated with Beaufort because uh, the Barnwells claimed descent from William Rhett. William Rhett, in one of his um, more demonstrative political uh, statements, knocked um, Landgrave Edmund Bellinger, who was one of the leaders of the dissenters from the southern part of this province, to the ground in Charleston, causing a big stir in 1707. And Landgrave Edmund Bellinger is a direct ancestor of mine. So when I find a rep, I, I challenge them. I'm supposed to knock them down to get even for, for this <laughs> event, that, this political event that occurred between a high church Anglican well, and Well, of course, some of, some of those folks who became reps because they changed their name. Yes, well, all, all those five Barnwell brothers, including Robert Barnwell Rett, changed their name in 1838 from Smith to Rett. <laughs> and that was Smith just spelled S-M-I-T-H, not the Smythe. Well, I mean, you know, if you know the history of South Carolina, South Carolina, you know that Smith is a very ancient and distinguished name in South Carolina. Many of you are probably descended from Landgrave Thomas Smith. I was going to say, one of the most famous Landgraves. Right. So I'll tell you this story. Um, a genealogists were chasing down Landgrave Thomas Smith, and they ran into one of his descendants in Richmond, Virginia, whose name was Landgrave T. Smith. 
And they went, they, they called him, this is the historical society, and they called him up to ask him if he knew what his lineage was. He says, no, it's just my name. I've had that name for years. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you never know what time is going to do to these traditions. Yeah. One of the stories about allegedly Dutch settlers, and I do, I do remember this, is here in Columbia, uh, one of our first major shopping centers was Dutch Square Mall. Mm -hmm. Well, when it was to be opened in the late 1960s, early 1970s, their theme was tulips and windmills, and <laughs> they actually had a member of the Royal House of Orange coming over to dedicate the mall until our former professor, Dan Hollis, wrote a letter to the editor <laughs> saying there are no people from the Netherlands in that area. Just because it's called the Dutch Fork doesn't mean that there were Dutch there. But of course, that comes from a corruption of Deutsch folk, German people. Uh, they kept the windmills and the tulips, but the princes did not come to, <laughs> to, to open the mall. Well, here's a current story for you. Um, the Spanish settlers, who uh, they brought a lot of settlers to Paris Island between uh, 1566 and 1587. And they lived there for 20 years. And almost all of these people came from the hometown of Pedro Menendez, the founder of Florida. They came from the province of Asturias. Well, that's where uh, the Queen of Spain comes from. That's her native area. She's very interested in coming to Santa Elena, to Paris Island. We may have the Queen of Spain here to open up a Spanish mall, you know, with flamenco <laughs> dancers. <laughs> uh, who knows? But if they can, if they can do it in St. Augustine, we can do it. <laughs> well, we, we talk about names that people uh, today would wonder. We could talk about the, you know, you talk about. Cleckley's and you'd know on Harmon to know immediately Lexington County. Today, people don't necessarily associate family names with with a particular particular county, but 50 years ago, you could. If you call the roll in your class and you had a Lafitte, they probably were from Hampton right. County. Mm -hmm. I did have Mr. Levine from Beaufort County in my class. You mm -hmm. sent him up, mm -hmm. but if you started looking. Um, today, do people recognize that Calhoun is a Scots name? Maybe, maybe not. Um, Jackson, as in Andrew Jackson, both part of what was then called the Scots-Irish migration, but the backcountry, the largest single ethnic group in the Carolina backcountry, white ethnic group, was the Scots-Irish. That's what made them so tough during the Revolution, and that's a later part of the story, is the English and their contempt, not just for the Scots, but particularly for the Ulster Scots, really stirred up a hornet's nest when they were disdainful of those folks. Our history, the religion, the ethnicity, it's, it's all a part of the mix. And we've just so far talked about the European ethnicity, Larry. We haven't gotten into the Native Americans, and we have not gotten into the African Americans. And for example, as, as you well know, we're dealing with our, the work that Dan Littlefield has done on the African-American population of South Carolina. We're dealing with probably 25 to 26 different ethnic groups that came from West Africa. And one of the fascinating things in reading the colonial correspondence of folks like Henry Lawrence, you know, both spent time as graduate students working on, yes, on that Lawrence project. Papers. White South Carolinians understood the ethnic difference. White Virginians referred either to Africans or Virginians born. South Carolinians could talk about a Senegambian, an Angolese, uh, Congo, whether they were from the Grain Coast or the Ivory Coast. They knew the difference. And you read Henry Lawrence's letters, and the terms he used are 18th century lay terms. But I have had 20th century anthropologists say, that's pretty much it. it it has to do with size, it has to do with skin color. Just because a person is from West Africa, the skin tone ranges from light tan to deepest ebony. Mm -hmm. And the physical size is, is different. You know, that's, that is another part of the ethnic stew that's in South Carolina. And if you really want to get into it, I'm going to throw the, the Native Americans to you because 
there are at least more than 40 Native, we've identified Native American tribes in South Carolina. Now, that is the term that is used today. When I wrote my history, they were, we referred to them as nations. It's gone back and forth, but now the term is, is tribe. The most important, of course, being the Yamasee. Who were actually immigrants. Uh, they were, their native different land was apparently on the Altamaha River in Georgia. But they were, they hated the Spaniards. In fact, in, in 1597, in what was known as the Juanilo Revolt, they, well, they wiped out the Spanish missions on the Georgia coast. And because they were traditional enemies of the Spaniards in Florida and the Timucuan Indians who were allies of the Spaniards, and the wars were pretty incessant among them. When the English arrived in Charleston, the embassy became their trading partners. First, the Scots that I described. Uh, and the real proximate reason for the destruction of Stuarttown in 1686 by the Spanish army was that they were um, basically paying or uh, offering bounties to the uh, Yamasee warriors to go to Florida to capture booty and destroy places and bring back Indian slaves. And the Spaniards were being disrupted, so they sent an army up the, up the coast and destroyed Stuarttown in 1686. But in, in, the, in the following years, the Yamasee simply left the Altamaha River and uh, moved to Pocatalogo, South Carolina, and they had several villages in that district. Well, a part of that, they were invited in by the colonial government right. to protect the southern frontier because they hated the Spaniards. And one of those famous lines with dealing with Native Americans, they were given that land in perpetuity. Yes. That includes Beaufort. <laughs> <laughs> they had a, there was a treaty in 1707 that divided the Beaufort district, everything south of the Broad River, which is Hilton Head, and Richland and Jasper County, was uh, considered Indian land throughout the colonial period. And the Yamasee villages were all in that district, but the sea islands around Beaufort were considered English territory. That, that had been actually granted before the Yamasee moved up, or about the same time, uh, to these Scottish traders, Thomas Nairn, John Stewart, the Bryans, others. So there was a, a division of the frontier there, which worked fine as long as the embassy were allies of the English, which they were for a long time, until they decided not to be. And um, that, of course, precipitated the embassy war. There's a wonderful new book coming out uh, by Larry Ibers, who's been working on that story as long as I've been working on Beaufort County. Mm -hmm finally publishing a book called Torrent of Indians. And the Yamasee War, 1715 to 1728, which began in the Beaufort District and nearly destroyed South Carolina, was the most dangerous and probably the most consequential Indian war in American colonial history because it, it decided the fate of uh, the Native American population of the Low Country to start with. And it precipitated the events which eventually decided the fate of the American Southeast not French as it was in Mobile in 1702, uh, not Spanish it was, as it was in St. Augustine from 1565, but English. They came very close to uh, destroying Charleston. It, it was actually the largest Indian Confederacy in colonial American history, larger than the Powhatan Confederacy in Virginia, larger than King Philip's War in, in New England. Uh, because it wasn't just the Yamasee, it, it was everybody but the Cherokee. The only time the Catawbas were against the settlers. The embassy had, had really con created a confederacy, and they thought the Cherokee were going to join in. And the attack started on Good Friday, when all the good church folk were in church, and they didn't have their guns. That changed after the embassy war. They were allowed to have take guns to church, and the, and the one of the jobs of the wardens was to take the guns at the narthex so they wouldn't go into the, you know, especially if the preacher were bad. Uh, uh, and but the embassy, uh, the, the when it began, the embassy war, they massacred all the traitors that were there, including Thomas Nairn, who was an Indian commissioner sent there specifically to negotiate with him. But uh, one man escaped told the story, uh, Captain Seymour Burroughs. And Burroughs said all the Yamasee Indians painted themselves with red and black rays over their whole bodies, which meant blood and death. And when you saw them painted like that, you better shoot because they're going to cut your head off. They were, they were a very 
an effective group of warriors, the MSE Indians. And uh, Seymour Burroughs, every, every, most of the traders who were in their huts at Pocataligo, backed into the house, which would be a natural reaction when you see somebody attacking. But Seymour Burroughs, as he was described in the records, was a large and robust man. And he ran directly at the Indians, ran right through them. They, they, he surprised them. And he jumped into the Pocadalago River and swam to Port Royal Island and brought word to those settlers. Not without injury, he was shot in the back, and he was shot in the back of the head. And the bullet that the Indian shot in the back of the head knocked all the teeth out the front of his head. And he still swam from Pocadalago to Port Royal Island, brought word uh, of that massacre. And, um, and that was just the beginning of the Embassy War. It went on pretty continuously for 13 years. Yeah. Most people ended after three years, but it, yes, the southern frontier was very unsettled. And it, as you say, it almost destroyed South Carolina. South Carolina, almost everything south of Charleston was wiped out. Right. The settlers fled to Charleston, and with a ring of about 30 miles around Charleston, that was all that was holding out. And of course, the MSC War and the lack of support of the Lloyd's proprietors helped generate the Revolution of 1719. Um, and as, as part of that story, one of the Lloyd's proprietors who was angry at the settlers was allegedly quoted as having saying, it was a, it was a damn shame that the Indians didn't get them all. Uh, whether he said it or not, that came back to South Carolina and helped fuel the spirit of the that led to the revolution. 1719, yeah. yeah. And, and basically that was the end of Native Americans in the low country of South Carolina was the Embassy War proximate cause. The embassy fled to Florida, they switched sides, went to the Spaniards, asked for aid and comfort. The Spaniards built them a village outside of St. Augustine called Pocataligo. And they stayed there and they merged with other refugees of the English pressure through Georgia and uh, Alabama, the Creek Confederacy. And all of those Native Americans in North Florida took the name of the Creek word for runaway or vagabond, which is Seminole. And that's what became of the Native American, the small ethnic tribes in the southeastern part of the state. South Carolina was divided among Indian ethnic groups. In the southeastern part of the state, they were mostly Creek and spoke Muscogean language. So they, ha they were related to the Timucuan of North Florida. They were related to the Indians of Alabama and uh, Georgia, but not to the Indians of the mountains, not to the Native, not to the Cherokee. They were different. And they were traditional enemies, the Creeks and the Cherokee which is probably the only reason that South Carolina survived the Embassy War. The Embassy were the biggest, but then all of our rivers, almost all of our rivers, are named for Native American right. tribes. Waccamaw, Santee, Siwi. Yeah. Uh, Pocatalico, Coosahatchee, yeah. on but, and on. But, but those, those reflected the some 40 different tribes, which except for the Yamasee, the Cherokee, and the Catawba, most Native American tribes in South Carolina were not much more than an extended family, anywhere between 25 and 100 people. The Edisto, for example, did never number more than 100. They were very easily wiped out by warfare because Larry's already mentioned that one of the big ways to make money was the Indian slave trade. So you need something, you catch an Indian slave, and then you market them in Charleston. In fact, the, the Indian slave trade became so notorious that some other colonies led by New Jersey actually passed legislation to forbid the importation of South Carolina Indian slaves. But part of the interesting ethnic mix is that Indian slave women were the first slave women put in the kitchen. And so there you begin to get the mix of European, African, and Native American cultures, it starts in the kitchen um, because the inventories are very specific and they'll say a such and such a name, an Indian wench. In the in, kitchen. You know, mm -hmm. in, in, in the kitchen. Is it about 30%, probably the largest single group of African slaves to South Carolina uh, in the 18th century were from the region of Congo and Angola. Um, and Angola apparently is a Latinized derivation of the African word Ngulla, N-G-N apostrophe G-U-L-L-A-H, which is where the Gullah culture comes from. Uh, now, on the Sea Islands, there are a lot of 
Gullah folks that uh, arrived after the uh, colonial period. But nevertheless, the largest single ethnic group uh, of the African immigrants was probably from that region of Africa. And this had political consequences because it was Portuguese. And the Portuguese, according to Dan Littlefield's book, and I think I've seen this confirmed in John Thornton's book on Africa and Africans and the American making the Atlantic world, that um, the Portuguese priests christened the slaves when they left just to save, to try and preserve their souls. So they came to America having some knowledge of Roman Catholicism. And this apparently was used by Spanish spies and agents to attract particularly Gullah slaves to run away from South Carolina and seek refuge in St. Augustine and the protection of the Roman Catholic Church, which was a very big movement from the Yamasee War right through 1763, and uh, was the proximate cause of the Stono Rebellion. As, as Mark Smith has talked about, yes. Yeah. Because it, the, the Stono Rebellion began on, on Mary Day, yeah. uh, and they carried the white flags, uh, which again, but it, not just the evidence of Roman Catholicism in the slaves, uh, our colleague Charles Joyner in his Down by the Riverside points out the number of plantations in Georgetown County where Pork products were not distributed to certain slave families, only beef products were distributed. Right. Well, now those folks, there were Muslim slaves who came here. Um, the most famous example is, that, is uh, the slave manager or driver of Sapelo Island, Georgia, who was named Buala. And Buala uh, ran the plantation for 30 or 40 years, was a very, because he could write, he was literate. And he kept plantation records in Arabic. They're still in the Georgia Historical Society. And uh, he used to have a prayer rug, and he prayed three times a day. And he was a very notable character. But he was in charge. And now, most of that group, that small group, would have come from West Africa, would have mm -hmm. come from Northwest Africa, Senegal and Gambia, yeah. and that region of Africa where uh, it's closest to the Sahara. The Gullis uh, folks that came from Angola and Congo mm -hmm. would very unlikely have known any uh, Muslim connection at all, but they knew Roman Roman Catholics. But the colonial ethnic mix was a lot more varied, as Walter said, and a lot more dynamic than um, most histories recognize. All right, I, I think, Larry, why don't we stop here and take some questions from the audience? As one of the uh, most recent uh, Jewish Yankee uh, immigrants to the state. <laughs> stories. Uh, I actually got related to the stories. I got two questions. Uh, one of which is, you said they had the role that all you had to believe in is God. Who was they, and how did that role get mm. permeated? And did the Jews from either Barbados or, uh, mm. or from Europe know about that role? Mm. And then also, uh, what year did the Jews first um, uh, start coming to South Carolina? Okay, yes, the, the idea of every, the belief in God, that was in the original fundamental constitutions, and the Lord's proprietors put together pamphlets to attract settlers, and they were distributed in Europe in German and French, mm -hmm. uh, and it was widely known in the Caribbean, where many of the early Jewish settlers came from, through the, through the trading circles. Um, and all they had to do was declare a belief in God. That was... And I really think it's through the trading patterns with the Caribbean is where they initially did. There were Jewish families in South Carolina in the 17th, late 17th century. I can't give you a specific date right off the, but I know that's when the Tobiases and the, and the uh, DeCostas got here. Another question. Were there any Anabaptists among the German immigrants to South Carolina? Sure were. Um, Actually, they were English Anabaptists, yep, in Charleston. In Charleston. And uh, they had quite influence in the, in the Beaufort district. Um, it's hard, to, hard for me to separate Anabaptists from um, regular Baptists. But uh, the Anabaptists were in the, in the uh, Beaufort district came as a consequence of the Ebenezer settlement in Georgia. And many stayed in the Beaufort area. So they, they were there. The Yuhaw's the Baptist Church was the first, was the mother church of the Baptist movement in that area, 1738. But 
this, uh, the Baptist, the Savannah River Baptist Association, uh, which included Ebenezer on the Georgia side, uh, Perrysburg and U-Haws on the, on the South Carolina side, and went all the way up to Augusta, um, is one of the oldest Baptist associations in the United States. And uh, so there's a very strong influence, and a lot of it was, were originally German Anabaptists. Uh, Reverend Martin Bolzius uh, brought a group headed for Ebenezer, not all of them made it to Ebenezer, a lot of them stayed in South Carolina. Well see, this, you mentioned congregations, those, some of those Scots-Irish settlers came very late. We think about the usual route down the Great Wagon Road from Pennsylvania, but there were at least two congregations who came in the 1770s from Ulster, directly to South Carolina as congregations, getting up there in the Waxhaws area of Rocky Creek, that upstate. area. Upstate, yeah. yeah. So congregation, see this religion, ethnicity, it all plays out throughout the colonial period. Well, I would like to thank you for being with us tonight. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Larry Rowland is a longtime friend and colleague, and we've had many conversations beside this one about South Carolina history and culture. I think one of the things that came out in today's conversation is how varied and diverse colonial South Carolina's population was by ethnic group and by religious denomination, and how those factors, among others, helped create what was the most multicultural colony in British North America. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.